Well, it's great to be together this morning. It's great to have guests who, who are here with us. I know many family members will come and participate in baptisms, and we're so grateful to have you this morning as our guests. I'm not even going to bother to comment on the game today, you know. That's about how I feel about it. Actually, here's, what's come to, here's what comes to mind. You guys have lived in Louisiana for some time now. You'll remember the year that here was your choices for governor. Dave Duke and Edwin Edwards. And that's how I feel about the game today. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess I'll watch it. I don't know. It's hard to pull against both teams. I just don't know, you know. I guess you just celebrate fumbles and interceptions and safeties, right? Whatever. All right. Well, if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 73 with me, and we are going to install part number three in a series that we're doing to start our year called Drawing Near. And it was just a, a word the Lord has been stirring in my heart for us as a church. I, I hope it's finding timely and fertile soil. I think sometimes the things that God does in our lives are joined with unique moments. And being in step with God is what sometimes brings such great impact into our lives. And I just believe this is a timely word for us from the Lord. Uh, part one, if you weren't here for it, we just tried to identify what it's like to starve to death for the presence of God. And that Christianity can turn into something that we only taste at one level and we don't digest it and it never really becomes us. Uh, so if you didn't, weren't here for part one, it would be helpful for you to go back and have a listen to that. Part two, we just visited. The Bible teaches us about drawing near. There's a concept in scripture called drawing near. Well, what is it? And how can we benefit from it? Well, today... We're going to turn our attention. I just called this a nearness of God. I think if I retitled it, I'd call it the goodness of nearness. What is the nearness of God and what, what is it about it that makes it good? Psalm 73, we're going to read the whole psalm in just a moment, but let me just quote the end of it to you in the beginning of your outline there. Verse 28 says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Psalm 73 verse 28 in the ESV says, but for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Well, today we're going to, we're going to encounter something that I'm going to call it an, an intentional contrast. When we read through Psalm 73 in just a moment, there is this intentional contrast taking place, and it's kind of a geographical thing. There's, there's nearness in this psalm, and there's farness in this psalm as well. So God wants to see that there's a difference for his people between experiencing the nearness of God and something that's apparently called the farness of God. And this is, this is not new Theologically, uh, maybe something that challenges some of us. When we read the Bible, we find the Bible describing a connection to God that is true of everybody who's a Christian. Right? Everybody who's a Christian must be 
by the very nature of becoming a Christian, indwelt by the Spirit of God. So if, if, if you know Christ as the candidates today baptized testified, if you know Christ, then, then he is living in you. Because you could not know him without the power of the Holy Spirit enabling you to know him. Right? So you can't be a Christian without the indwelling presence of God. But yet, even with that, the scriptures create this far and near category while it also teaches that the Spirit of God dwells in every Christian. Right? And this is not new. I think if you go back through church history, you go back to the 1700s, you find men like John Wesley and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield who were mockingly accused by the Church of England, which was having its own falling apart uh, moment in history, of forming what they call the Holy Club. These men came to a place where what they saw in Christianity and what they were experiencing in Christianity, not just the, the, the doctrines and beliefs, but the real impact of Christianity, was so poor that they just had a hunger for more. They wanted more than what they had in that moment. And so they formed a club and they became very intentional about a number of things that they did spiritually. And God brought a revival out of those men's lives. Across the pond over in America, while the colonies were beginning to fall apart spiritually in the early 1700s, a man named Jonathan Edwards also had a desire for more than what he was experiencing, more than what the church was experiencing. And eventually God met Jonathan Edwards and many others like him in America, and they experienced the Great Awakening. Fast forward to the end of the 1800s, and you'll come across uh, men like Andrew Murray, uh, F.B. Meyer, R.A. Torrey, and everybody who had two letters in front of their names. They didn't have, apparently give out names back then, but <laughs> letters. Um, these men taught in an area, and if you go back and you read during that time, you'll come across terminologies like the deeper life. There's a lot of deeper life teaching going on there. Well, you know, that, that has some doctrinal elements to it that, that maybe some of us would or would not agree with. But it's just making a simple statement that whatever it is that we're experiencing right now, there's something more than this. There's something deeper than what we've got right now. It, we're Christians, but there's still something deeper than this. And then that gave way to the Pentecostal movement that began in the 1900s, the charismatic movement that happened later on. And, and those movements installed the spirit-filled life terminology into our lives. And so immediately, there's, all of that has a contrast to it, doesn't it? There's revived and there's unrevived. Right? There's deeper and there's not deeper. There's shallow by contrast. There's the spirit-filled life and there's the not spirit-filled life. So in all these places, history, biblical followers of God have sensed that there is something more than what I've got right now. And I want it. Well, you know, Jesus used the, the terminology, this geographical farness terminology too. When he sat amongst his generation... And there were people who were continuing to go through religious motions. They, hadn't, they didn't not believe in God. They had a place, a category for going to church and being around the things of God. But Jesus stood among that generation. And this is sobering because we always have a tendency to dismiss them like, I'm glad that's them and not me. I don't know. Maybe it's me more than I want it to be admitted that it's me. When Jesus turns to them and says, this generation honors me with their lips, 
but their hearts are far from me. Right? That's geography. Right? They, their hearts are in a geography that I classify as far away from me. Right? So this is a concept. This nearness of God is a concept that's clear in Scripture. I think I'll put this in your outline. Does the Bible teach and do we need to consider our lives in some sort of proximity to God? A nearness and farness. Now, I'm not trying to unpin biblical indwelling of the Holy Spirit, oh, that we belong to God. But the psalmist is going to make a presentation to us when he says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Not, not the existence of God is my good. Not the vague acknowledgement of God is my good, but the nearness of God is my good. And I think we can get some help from understanding what is this nearness concept. That word nearness in the passage we're about to read in Psalm 73, uh, it's the Hebrew word kerbah. It means being or coming into the most near and intimate proximity of the object or the subject. So I'm going to define nearness as a conscious awareness of intimate proximity. How's that for a bunch of words? Conscious awareness of intimate proximity, right? So if I'm, I'm, I'm here today, it's easy for me to walk up to you and say, hey, you, you believe in God? And, and one yes after another. Yeah, I believe in God. You're a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. How's, how's God's nearness to you? That's a totally different question, isn't it? Especially as we're going to see today. So I I don't know if I wrote this in your outline or not. It is simply a biblical reality that God uses nearness and farness type language to describe people who belong to him in both the old covenant and the new covenant. Assuredness, listen, of God's covenant covering is not the same as experiential nearness. It's not the same. Knowing that I am in the new covenant, I am connected to God, I am included in the people of God's category is not the same as experiencing the nearness of God. So let's not get comfortable just because on paper, I know I'm a Christian. God's interested in more than that. So today we're going to look at, in Psalm 73, what I'm going to call a tale of a contrasted Christian. The story of farness and nearness. It's not going to be a children's book, right? I want you to meet farness and nearness today. Now, Psalm 73 brings this contrast to us. And in the end, the last condition we're going to meet in this man's life is going to be contrasted with how he started In the end, he's going to call it nearness, and he's actually going to use the word farness to establish this nearness. But clearly, it is God's nearness or farness that greatly influences how you and I feel about our lives. The proximity, the experiential proximity of the nearness of God or the farness of God is having a huge impact on how you feel about your life this morning. I know I wrote this intentionally in your outline. 
most of the real battle of our souls has to do not with how our life is going, but with how we feel about how our life is going. You think about that for a second with me? Most of the battle of our soul, misery, the emotion, the heaviness, the distance we feel, it's not so much with how is our life really going, right? Put the stats down on paper. Let's just look at, let's just look at income. Let's just look at activities. Let's look at where we live. Let's look at what life's afforded us. Right? Well, for most of us, that's not a bad equation, is it? And you're an American. You, you do realize your life is unusual on a world scale. Everybody in this room would be considered wealthy in most parts of the world. We have it very, very well off by comparison to many, many people. The sheer stats on our lives, how are things going? Pretty good. How do you feel about how things are going? Maybe not so good, right? And and there's so much perspective in this. There's so much internal adjustment that we're not aware of what's making it feel that way. I was remembering, you know, when my wife and I bought our first house, we were so excited. We just found this house. Um, There was a lot of charm to it. And it was just our first house to own. You know, and we're starting off, we're getting married. And right before we got married, I bought the house. And this is so exciting. You know, it was, it was a thousand square feet, had no dishwasher, right? I mean, it was just a simple home. There's, there's nothing extravagant at all about it, right? So if you approached me today and said, Keith, I've got this thousand square foot home. It's got no dishwasher. It's a pretty simple thing. It's a wood frame house. That's going to be yours. <laughs> I'd feel like, gee, man, what a downgrade. I don't I don't feel so excited about that uh, at this point. But, but that was a great setup, right? I'm driving here to work this morning. I'm driving to church and I'm driving my car. It's approaching 160,000 miles on it. And, I, and this BMW passes me on the, on the service road. Brand new, white, you know. I was doing fine until he passed. <clears throat> car was running fine. You know, nothing's falling off of it. It's doing fine. It's getting me here. Till that thing drove by. Then all of a sudden I felt different about my car. There's all kinds of stuff in us that just affects the reality of who we are and what we're doing and how we feel about who we are. Now, what's amazing when we read through this psalm and we get to the end of it, now pay attention to this because nothing changes for this man. But in his heart and in his attitude, everything changes. So how can everything change on the inside of me and how I feel in my attitude while nothing around me changed at all? And that's his story. Charles Spurgeon, in commenting on <clears throat> this psalm, says, Now in this statement, the psalmist, first of all, he tacitly condemns other courses of actions, right? The nearness of God is my good. Take the text in context, in connection with the psalm of which it is the conclusion. And you will see at once that he repents of a certain course of thought 
to which he had given way, right? He's, he's coming from a former position to a new position. And the recoil from his error is the exclamation, it is good for me to be near to God. It is as if he meant to say, it is not good for me to do what I have done. It is infinitely better for me to draw near to God. And that's where he lands. That's not where he starts. Let's read Psalm 73. Verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, before we get into his experience here, just this is, who is this man who is starting out? Well, he's a man aware that God is in a covenant relationship with Israel. That's what he's highlighting from the beginning. Surely God is good to Israel. Surely there are some things about my life as an Israelite who is in covenant with God that are a good deal. I, I got a good thing going on here. But I had nearly slipped. I had so lost sight of that. I was in a bad way, right? So this is, this is the tale of a person who can belong to God and yet still be experiencing farness from God. Right, let's read verse four. As he thought about these wicked folks, he says, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, listen to this contrast. When I was pricked in heart, when I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, right here's the turn. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. 
You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom am I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And Lord, you have made this psalm available to us. And boy, how we can identify with it. Lord, this, is, this man is not a stranger to us. He feels like us. We survey the life we have, and then we feel a certain way about it. And Lord, there are moments when we just don't like the life that we have. And Lord, today, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what wonderful, liberating, helpful truth awaits us in this passage. Open our hearts, Lord, as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me start with the story of nearness. You know, given my propensity for time, I want to make sure and give you the best stuff of this passage before we get to the bad stuff. The story of nearness, verse 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, right? He's looking out at life. He's noticing how others' lives feel, at least what it looks like from his distance, how their lives feel. And then he looks at his own life and he's scratching his head, not understanding, confused. How do I interpret what seems to me I've gotten the raw end of the deal? I've gotten the shaft on this. How do, how do I figure this thing out? Verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discern therein, right? This is a, a geographical relocation. There's a lot of geography in this passage. So he is geographically relocating to a place. Can you go with me here? To a place where God is different here than he is over there. Does that make sense? Wait, wait, wait. Well, God is everywhere and God doesn't change and God is the same. But God chooses to make himself available to us differently in different moments. There are places in scripture where God withholds himself. God is still there, but the people of God feel like, where on earth don't we belong to God? God seems to be nowhere because God has chosen to let them experience him a certain way. And then there are other places that this man's describing. He goes into this thing called the sanctuary of God, a place where God has chosen for his presence to dwell. And, and when he gets near to God, all of a sudden, Nearness <clears throat> brings discernment and accurate life assessment. Up until this moment, and we don't know how long this was. <clears throat> Is this a couple of weeks? Is this a couple of years in this man's life? Don't know how long he was on a slippery place as he described it. But in this setting, clarity has shown up. Discernment. And he looks at life now and he begins to see life accurately. Right? Now, he's not alone in this. Throughout scripture, we find this. Gaze at life. 
find things that are bad, vain, worthless things and call them good and meaningful and valuable. I don't know if anybody besides me has that problem, but I'm capable of doing that. And that's what he does. And that's true in other places. Psalm 36, verse 1. Listen, Listen to the blindness that's here. Wholehearted embrace of life, but blind as to what really is taking place in your life while you live in this way. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. That's, well, if you're here this morning and you're running around thinking that whatever sin you have hidden, it's not going to be discovered. There's a, there's, a, there's a table out there for morons to sign up at. <laughs> it's not going to end that way. It is not going to end that way. You've, you think you have covered your tracks. In such a way. Can you just read this passage and recognize the God of the universe who has lived forever. Who knows everything wrote these words. He thinks his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself up in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. And he thinks he's okay. He thinks he's fine. Now, by contrast, the psalm terms and does the same kind of a contrast. A little bit later, it says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. That's a nearness phrase, right? That's geography, right? You've got this image of God taking refuge in in the shadow of God's wings. It's trying to let you know. Not taking refuge out there in the desert underneath the hot sun, but you have actually drawn near to God where his presence creates this protective shadow over your life. So you are near to God in this passage. They feast, those who do this, they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life in your light. Do we see light? Listen, that's an incredibly important principle. It's big and I want to take time to unpack it. But you understand when you read the Bible, the Bible doesn't put you in this fallen world with your own flashlight. Like apart from God, you have some light available for you to figure stuff out. No, that's not how the Bible describes you. The Bible describes you not only as in darkness, like, you know, I'm in darkness, but the Bible describes you as darkness. You know what emanates from you as a created being? Darkness. And if that doesn't get the point across, then the Bible turns around and says that you are blind. So can we just marry all three of those together? You're in a room. I think I did this too. Did I do this to us once as a church? A black in the auditorium once. Uh, you are in a room where there is no light. No light. Your eyes have nothing to adjust to. There's nothing there. And not only is there no light out there, but you are darkness as well. And then just in case, you're also blind. 
okay, the only hope that I'm going to be able to see life correctly is for God to bring his light to me. In your light, we see light. Right? Isaiah, we spent some time with Isaiah over the last weekend with the men. Isaiah spends the first five chapters highlighting the condition of the people into which he was being called. And it's not a pretty picture. There's no flattery there. It's a mess. Right? Isaiah 2, verse 5 Isaiah says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord, right? By contrast, you guys have not been walking in the light of the Lord. Oh, by the way, geographically, come here from wherever it is that you are, from that faraway place, come here and let's walk in the light of the Lord because where you've been, and in your farness, there isn't light, and you're not walking in the light of the Lord. It goes on later in Isaiah 5, and he pronounces these woes because of their condition. He says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Do you, do you see the confusion that comes in when the lights are really out and we try and grope around and figure out what life is supposed to be about? Right? We live in a day that is doing exactly what Isaiah described. We call evil good and good evil. It, it's upside down, isn't it? Right now, you know, we're kind of alarmed because we've lived in a generation where we've watched it get turned upside down. So things that used to be evil are, are now being called good. Matter of fact, they're top priorities. They're in the news every night and the laws need to protect those people. And even though some of these people are less than like 1% of the human population, they will get standing ovations when their issue gets brought up in public. It's upside down because we live in a generation that doesn't have light. And so therefore it calls evil good and it calls good evil. And that's the concern here for not being near to God. Listen, is, does your life feel good to you? I'm not saying is your life good on paper, right? Like I said earlier, but does it feel good to you? Do you interpret your life as, it's good, my life is good. Listen, you, you cannot do that accurately without the light of God and his nearness to help you see what you need to see so you can ever call something good. How do you, how do you go about making decisions in your life? You know, who are you going to marry? That's a big decision in your life. Are you going to stay married to the person that you married? That's a big decision in your life. Now, remember, when you go to make that decision... In your light, we see light. God, when I go to make that decision, I'm going to need the nearness of God to help me make that decision in my life. See, listen, when, when days of trouble come, all right, you know, days of trouble and days of, of off-the-leash ambitions, right? That can describe your marriage at some point. You're not married, but your ambitions to be married are off-the-leash, and therefore, because I'm so ambitious and I want something so bad, I kind of don't want God crowding me 
as I'm trying to make that decision, right? So we just subtly begin to install some distance between us and God. Stop getting around God as much. You know, it's innocent. We're just busy. We just have a lot going on. So we just stop being where the word's being preached. Not fellowshipping with people who might be challenging some thoughts, not reading and getting around God. And next thing you know, now it's, it's time for me to make a decision about that person in my life. Right? You can be married and this happens to you. Your marriage gets hard, discouraging. You begin to sort of detract, go into yourself. You don't want to be around people. You know, things are ugly and hard and you begin to back away from the light and you get into a darker and darker and darker and darker place. Experientially, it becomes very dark. And now you have to make a decision about whether you're going to stay married. That's a tough moment, isn't it? See, how you feel about your life has everything to do with the nearness of God. Because you can stare at one circumstance with God far off and feel one way about it. You can stare at that same circumstance with God near and feel totally different about it. And it's the same exact circumstance. Look in verse, keep reading here. Go back to verse 17. Skip down, verse 21. When my soul was embittered, I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. But then... I drew near to God and I realized I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. And this is not what he sounded like just a moment earlier, is it? He was accusing God. Didn't understand why things are going one way for these people and why he's getting the short end of the deal. Okay, now he is drawn near to God and it's like with that drawing, lights have come on and he's surveying the room and he sees a bunch of stuff in it now that he didn't see before, right? Nearness brings awareness of God's companionship and support in our lives. God's companionship and his support are valuable things to us. The nearness of God brings an awareness of that to our lives, right? Psalm 16, verse eight says, I have set the Lord always before me. Now, how many of you recognize that that's different than just knowing God exists and he's there somewhere out there, right? Everybody with me on this? Because if you don't catch this, this is a waste of an hour for you. I have set the Lord before me. I am conscious and aware of his presence. That's what that means. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Well, well, just a moment ago, you were referring to conditions that shake you and make you afraid. And now all of a sudden you're describing the ability to rejoice and have joy and feel secure. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You don't just exist. You're not just on a page in a book. You're not just someone I remember hearing some things about. No, no, I'm aware of your nearness. So even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
So it's not avoiding the, the, the valleys. How many of us have lived our lives thinking what's most important is I've got to avoid the stinking valleys. You got a map, Keith? Can you just show me where all the valleys in life are? And I'll just, I'll just go around those. Um, no, life doesn't work that way. And that's not God's plan for you. God's plan is to be with you in the valley. Not for you to avoid the valley. God's plan is for you to go in places where it does scare the tar out of you. And that scare gets fully blown in your heart. It will make you turn to God in a way that you will draw near to him. And God's interested in that. Right? Conscious awareness of God's nearness remedies. Right? It fixes this. It remedies insecurity. Being shaken. Fear. And it replaces that with gladness of heart and rejoicing, right? That's what happened in these Psalms. It was just the nearness of God that did that. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have for, because, here's the reason why, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. What made the difference here? Why is it that I can move from this insecure, I don't know how my needs are going to get met, place of discontent to confidence, living in that moment in confidence? Well, the reason given is because I am with you. And you're aware that I am with you. Conscious awareness of God's nearness remedies our fear of lack and fosters contentment and confidence. The Bible's not real high on us being timid as Christians. Right? God has not given us a spirit of timidity. God's given us a sense of his nearness so that we can have some confidence. I go to do this courageously because I know who's with me in this. So even though I don't have a lot of confidence in my ability, I have great confidence in the one who is with me. But I need to be aware that he is actually with me. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's a... Very short phrase for the church that has been unfolding in history ever since. And it's been amazing and scary, exhilarating, life-threatening, full of opportunities and full of fear all at the same time. Christians behind the Iron Curtain, Christians in the Middle East today, Christians in first century facing Jewish and Roman opposition. Go and make disciples. Oh, and here's the important part for you to remember. Lo, I am with you always. What a difference it makes to live our lives on mission, aware that God's with us in this. But listen, I know that sounds great. Hey, Keith, that's, that thing. that's a good bumper sticker. That's good for me to remember. But, but do you remember it though? That's my downfall because my mission is not just, well, you know, next time I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in Afghanistan and I'm sharing the gospel, I'll keep that in mind. Um, but how about next time I'm just living the life God's called me to live that has its own installed moments that scare me and intimidate me 
and make me feel like I can't do this? How about in those mission moments, I become aware of the nearness of God. I consciously am aware that God is near to me. What a difference that is going to make. Verse 24. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. You guide me with your counsel. Right? Nearness brings God's guidance to our lives. What do I do next? How do I live this? How how do I make a decision here? Guidance comes from nearness. When God is near to us, Jeremiah 29, verse 12, then you will call upon me, right? This is is an action toward God. You will come and pray to me. Now we're in the geography, right? You're going to come from wherever you are. You're going to come to me and pray and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, listen to these words, then you, when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Isaiah 55, verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Listen, did you just grab the concept here? There is a God who exists and you exist, right? That's a fact. God doesn't start existing when you start seeking. So in some sense, God is always there, isn't he? So to the people who know that God is always there, the Bible turns around and says, seek him. Do you get this? Because I I think we can kind of kick back in sort of lounge chair Christianity. Read, as I said a couple weeks ago, read big promises. Read the resume that belongs to us as the children of God and just never get up and pursue and experience much of anything got the most enormous bank account in the universe, but I'm clueless about how to write a check. Well, there's this thing called pen and on paper and you write it and money becomes real. Oh, no, no, I'm wealthy though. I'm, I'm really wealthy. Well, you're living like a pauper because you don't know how to write a check. This is real. This great, incredible, amazing, mind-blowing God is our God. But yet he turns around and says, even though you belong to me and I belong to you, seek me. Draw near to me. Come and pray to me. Call upon me. While he is near, your more geography, let the wicked forsake his way, right? Wherever far off place you've gone to forsake that and the unrighteous man, his thoughts and let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Listen, drawing near to God is going to probably mean forsaking something else for you. You're going to have to relocate sometimes. You just don't get to keep doing what you've been doing that's produced the far life and then at the same time experience all the goodness of nearness. You're going to have to leave that land and come to where God is. Right? Verse 24 helps us with nearness that brings awareness of what is temporary and what is eternal. Right? Afterward, you will receive me to glory. Here's a man draws near. He has surveyed the temporary lives of friends and relatives and neighbors. He scratched his head. He all of a sudden begins to feel differently about his life. Not a bad life before, but by comparison, he doesn't like his life now. 
So he's got an attitude here. He draws near to God and God introduces him to some eternal eyesight. And suddenly that situation in their life is temporary. And there are things about my life that are permanent. Oh, I forgot about that. That just slipped out. See, when you get far enough away from experiencing the nearness of God, the darkness begins to crowd and our eyesight's pretty bad anyway. And so we don't see these things anymore. And we feel different about our lives. Like look in verse 26 here. This is just a reality. My flesh and my heart may fail. Well, in the big scheme of things, I can guarantee you, your flesh and your heart will fail. The may part just comes in for right now. It may fail today, (laughs) but in the long run, it is going to fail. I I hope you're not putting down roots too deep here because this thing, it's going to fail. It's got an expiration date on it. You just can't, you haven't been able to find it yet. You know how they stamp your milk? It's a stamp somewhere on you. You just can't find it. At some point, this thing is going to fail. Right now, if you're below 30, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I sound like that teacher on peanuts. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> sure. Yeah, right. We about done? Um, if you're 50 or above, your body has been sending you signals for a while. <laughs> letting you know. You're kind of in the foothills of that failing part, you know? Not mountains yet, but you notice how you feel a little bit? Yeah, 60, 70. I mean, you start getting in touch with, this is a temporary gig. The nearness of God keeps that in front of you so that when you look up at life, you're able to say, hey, you know what? That's temporary and this is permanent. Let me make sure I'm understanding that correctly. Spurgeon says about this drawing near, he says, in order to draw near to God, the soul must grasp the thought that God is near to it. And the soul must have a clear sense of who and what God is. Ignorance is an effectual barrier to any approach to God. Seeing that our drawing near is not physical, since God is always equally near to our bodies, it is mental and spiritual. And therefore, to such an approach, there must be an intelligent knowledge and apprehension of the Lord. We must know him as good, as great, as just, as holy, as merciful, as true, as faithful. And knowing him, understanding something of his character, we must then grasp the thought that he is even now here, close at hand. Nearer to us than any earthly friend could be. For he possesses our heart and encompasses us on every side. Listen, isn't it just natural tendency for us when we get into a moment where we feel disoriented, things are hard, things aren't going right, we want to run to the next first human voice we can find. How many of us have talked to 10 people before we've ever talked to God about the things that trouble our souls? Listen, that's just a bad, bad way to seek counsel. Even the people that are the most well-intended people, whatever they're about to say to you needs to get in line behind what God is saying to you. 
Sometimes people want to let all the pain out of your life, you know? They're just sweet. I don't, you probably call your grandmother in moments like these, right? Because she just wants to let all the pain out. You know, so I'm this, I'm this, I'm so, oh, honey, come here. She just wants to comfort and get all that, to get all that out. Yeah. It, you know, it might be that what God has to say to you is, oh, I'm, I'm not done yet turning the heat up. Really, God? Yeah, I'm, I'm at work here in a way that's deep and effective in a, in a work that needs to happen in your life. And you're going to hate it first and then you're going to love it later. I just, I'm, I'll, I'll tell you that much and I don't, I don't need to tell you anymore because you won't get it anyway. So that, you might need to hear that from God rather than from your grandmother or somebody else who might not have what God has in mind in mind for you. So the nearness of God is pretty important. Are we seeking him? The Lord is not merely round about us, but he is in our souls, filling their every corner and chamber, entering into the core and center of our physical and mental nature. Now, when our mind is filled with these two thoughts, God near us and reconciled to us, We have become capable of spiritually drawing near to him. And might I say this, when that's true and we're drawing near, we have become capable of all kinds of things, quite honestly. The nearness of God brings capacity with it and ability with it. All right, let me give you a quick sketch of the story of farness in this psalm. I'm just going to look at a couple of quick thoughts. Charles Spurgeon said this, said in connection with this psalm, we may also learn that it is not good for us under any circumstances to get very far from God. The verse that precedes the text runs thus. They who are far from you shall perish. All right, there is death in distance. So you and I don't ever want to participate in distance. A couple of highlights here. Verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I was envious of the arrogant. Farness brings an unhealthy preoccupation and obsession with how our lives compare to others. Please hear this if you've been sleeping through the message so far. You live in the most comparing culture of all time. It used to be that you had to be a really good writer and have some really unusual thoughts to get published. Now you just need a cheap computer and electricity available and you can publish your life and someone will read it. And in reading it, unavoidably compare themselves to the one that they're reading about. Unavoidably. It's a strange form of voyeurism or something. We look in on people's lives and then we evaluate our own based on how they're doing. Listen, there's, there's a couple of ways to do life because this is just true of us. Remember, there's a, there's a fallen condition Man has experienced this cutting off from God. So, you know, we, 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 were, we were supposed to be connected to the life of God. And so in that connection, we would always feel a certain way. It's like we'd have a, a sense of where we are and who we are. When sin cuts that, this disconnection that we experience from that moment on, 
we don't know where we are. And we don't know who we are. And that's the, the terrible thing about living life, isn't it? I don't know who I am. I don't know where I am. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know how I'm supposed to be feeling about myself. That's how life feels to us. So you and I, from the moment we are conscious of life, are trying to find the coordinates of where am I and who am I. We live our whole lives doing this. Now, two ways you can find your coordinates, right? Sonar. You know know what sonar is? Sonar is that device in a submarine, right? Submarine's underwater. It can't see, but it can shoot out these sound waves. And so to find out where they are, they, they bounce the sound waves off other objects to determine where they are. So, you know, bounce it off. There's a rock formation over here. Kind of go this way. Bounce it off. There's a ship up here. Bounce it off. There's a submarine in front of us, right? Sonar is a horrible way to find out who you are and where you are. Because you run around pinging. That's what they call it. They ping. Pinging people to find out who you are. All right, ladies, never do this to you. Walk into a room, somebody your age, and she's looking pretty good. She's the same age as you? Come on. Ping. I am... (laughs) I am so fat. <laughs> Ping my hair. I can't stand my hairdresser. Ping. Right? This is this pinging life. Right? Men do it. You know, we compare ourselves. You know, you get out on the court. And ping, ping, ping. That guy stinks. I'm better than him. I'm better than him. That guy's good. Ping, ping. Right? Success in life. Whatever you're driving, whatever your title is at work, you're pinging somebody else's title. And how's he doing? How much money does he make? What kind of house? Of, ping. What kind of house does he live in? Ping. Boy, his kids are really well behaved and mine are just obnoxious. Ping. Right? <laughs> and you're finding where you are all the time. Right now, do you recognize the first half of this psalm is lived on sonar? This is a man lifts his eyes and he finds people, regardless of their destiny, regardless of their relationship with God, regardless of a bunch of things, ping, 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 ping. Look how good they have it. Look how, you know, now that I think about it, look how bad I have it. I don't even know if he was thinking this before. I was envious of the arrogant, when I saw the prosperity. It's like, oh, were you envious before? Well, I hadn't pinged them, you know? I, I didn't know how well they were doing. I wasn't paying attention that I was fine. And then ping, wait a minute. Not as well as off as I thought. You know, God's supposed to be faithful to me. What happened to him? I'm not, this isn't good at all. I don't know that he was feeling that way until he turned his sonar on. Right, listen, there's another way to live your life. It's, it's more like a God GPS, right? God GPS, God sits in the heavens. He doesn't need to know what's around you. He doesn't measure you off of how somebody else is doing. He just, he has a purpose and a call for your life. And for you to figure out where you are, just, just stare back at God and just say, hey, God, am I where, am I where I'm supposed to be? Am I living the life for your glory that you've called me to live? Am I standing on the ground that you called me to stand on? Not do I compare well with somebody else, but God, am I just where you want me to be? Because it could be that God didn't want you to be as tall as that person 
or as skinny as that person, or as funny as that person, or have the kind of skills that make a lot of money. God had some different plans for you. God had plans for you to live to be 55 years old and somebody else to live to be 85 years old. Right? You, you want to find out where you are and feel okay about where you are? Stop pinging everybody else. And just start finding out who God's called you to be. But you, you can't do that without drawing near to God. Right? That really fixed this man when he drew near to God. Look at verse 4. Farness brings us into a place of unequaled and inaccurate thinking. Look at this, verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Look at verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All right, now how many of y'all think that actually is an accurate description of those people? Right, you lift your eyes up and you, and you take a three-minute survey of that person's life. You don't know what they're like at home. You don't know what they're like personally. You have no idea whether they've got ulcers and having a miserable time because they're wearing a smile and driving a nice car. Like, everything's got to be going good. So you survey quickly and you draw all kinds of conclusions. Does anybody really, really think that there's some people out there that you can say they've got no pangs in their life until they're dead? Everything just went smooth. No trouble, they're not stricken, and they're always at ease. Come on. What are you, what are you watching, a sitcom? I won't fill in the blanks, but just go down the road of popular entertainers who can stand on a stage in front of a giant audience, present themselves a certain way. They got presence, charisma about them, and then just read the trail of news headlines that follow them. The person who is so popular, look at the success, the people coming to them. Look at the way they carry themselves but they take uppers to get up and downers to get down and they got drug problems and they've got, you know, that's their third wife. Oh, I thought it was their second. And if you drove around in a car with them for a week, I guarantee you, you'd feel a little different about them. I guarantee you wouldn't say stuff like this. That person's got no pangs. Everything is smooth in their life. See, that's what farness does to you. It disrupts your ability to discern things accurately. You, you grossly exaggerate to your own demise. And that's what this man was doing. Look in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Well, oh, really? Keeping your heart clean? And walking in innocence is worthless? Doesn't have any value. Is that right? Purity's got no value? Innocence has got no value? Well, this is what farness brings with it. Farness brings an upside-down value system. It takes things that really are valuable and it turns them upside down. This man actually looks at things that are valuable beyond belief. One thing. One thing of all the things have I asked and that will I seek that I may dwell in the presence of the Lord all the days of my life. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord that you might dwell with him? He who is pure in heart. The most valuable thing you've got going on in your life is experiencing the nearness of God and your purity has got something to do with that. And here's a man who lost his mind 
said, all these, all these stinking years, I've kept myself pure. For what? It's worthless. This is what distance does to you. This is the life of farness. Listen, you can be sitting here today with some really upside down values in your life, right? Quick thoughts. Farness can't find value in sacrificing for others. You spend your time, you spend your energy on other people in their need at the expense of yours. Farness can't find value in it. Can't find value in serving at your own inconvenience or expense. Can't find value in giving up your finances to further a cause outside of your own. Listen, do you understand? I know I'm going to ruffle your feathers here, but if you don't give to the kingdom of God, it screams farness. Oh, but I'm a Christian. It screams farness. You're looking at God through your binoculars because you can't find value in giving of yourself outside of your own personal benefit. And unfortunately, the Bible actually talks about your personal benefit and your giving as well. But you can't see that. It's awful hard to see in the dark, isn't it? These are darkness issues. These are distance from God issues. Farness can't find value in interceding for the cause of God in others' lives. How much time do you spend interceding for others? Taking your precious time and your brain waves and devoting them to somebody who's got a need in their life that you actually spent the time to pray for them and lift them up. See, farness can't find value in that. Can't find value in going to a foreign mission field instead of living in the lap of luxury. Farnas can't understand why you'd choose to forgo the passing pleasures of sin when you choose to remain pure or choose to sit at home by yourself rather than engage in a party lifestyle just for the sake of having something to do. So I remember being a young person. I remember a lot of time bored, bored, bored as a college student because my options were go hang out with the guys in the fraternity scene and live the party life or sit at home a lot of times by myself. Farness from God cannot find value in that. That doesn't keep that sounds horrible. My skin's crawling with the thought of me doing what you just described. Listen, what does that tell you about yourself? It tells you you're like this man who thought keeping himself pure and his hands innocent was of no value. I resent that I've done this. Well, that's what farness will make you feel like as opposed to nearness. All right, we're out of time. All right, I'm gonna try, I think next week, and be rather practical about our means of nearness to God. But today, can we just get a handle on the reality of our nearness to God? Just just get a handle on that. Is my life more characterized by the first half of this psalm? My sonar lifestyle, my comparing, my looking at where others are, trying to figure out how I feel about me, discontent. I just listen real, real quietly. Just listen to these words. To encounter the psalmist in his farness condition is to encounter a man who is angry, frustrated, 
brooding, easily irritated, obsessed, comparing, complaining, discontent, impatient, unkind, critical. That's the psalmist in the first half of this psalm. You listen to that list real carefully. Do these words describe me? Right? Here's the temptation, right? Well, yeah, and if I could just fix the stuff that's causing all this, then I won't be that way anymore. Okay, can you and I get convinced where this psalmist lands, you and I need to land too? It's not all that stuff out there that needs to get fixed. It's, it's my nearness to God. I can't see my life correctly. I don't know what to call most of it. I don't know whether it's good, whether it's purposeful, whether it's glorious, whether it's a moment of incredible death before resurrection. I don't know what to do with my life because the nearness of God isn't happening for me. Perhaps those words go away in our lives. When the nearness of God comes and in your light, we see light. Because that's that's not going to happen without nearness. I said, at some point I got to turn a corner here in this little series to talk about the reality of nearness. I will say this to you men. How many of you guys felt like we experienced the nearness of God at that retreat last weekend? Yeah, I thought so. Greatly thought so. And I was encouraged by that. And I left the retreat (laughs) encouraged and discouraged all at the same time. Because I knew that the nearness of God was available. I knew that the nearness of God could be accomplished and it could be experienced and it was real. And then I also knew all of us as men were going back into lives that we have built and constructed where there's no opportunity for the nearness of God. There is no opportunity for the nearness of God. And we will forget about it as fast as we experienced it. And that cannot remain. That cannot be the story of our lives. We cannot live as Christians with a farness view of God. Simply has got to change. God's got more. There's a reason why people call out for revival and they want to go deeper and they want the spirit-filled life. There's a reason why. Because God seems so far away. And if you're here this morning and you're feeling like, I can identify with that, dude. I'm, Keith, I'm kind of feeling like God is far away. All right, well, let's stand up together and let's, let's pray and ask God for that to change. Let's ask God to make a difference in how we experience his nearness. Lord, we identify with this psalmist perhaps way too much. Lord, thank you for the deep realities in this one psalm. God, arrest us. Keep us from believing that if we just fix all those things out there, that would fix us. 
Lord, you have a purpose in our lives that involves walking through valleys where there's a shadow of death. You have a purpose for us to live in bodies where our, our flesh and our strength may fail. You, have, you will not and you have no plans on rescuing us from that reality. So Lord, there's some things about our lives we can pray for and pray for and pray for. They're not going to change. But Lord, we cannot be a people who live far from you. Surely, those who are far from you will perish. Lord, we don't want to live in the land of perishing. We don't want death because of distance to be our story. So God, thank you for helping us to see these things. Thank you for bringing them to our attention. Thank you for making us aware. Now, Lord, we want you to make it real. We want the story of our lives in this year, in the days ahead, to be stories of nearness, stories of the incredible benefit, the joy, the renewal, the confidence, the courage, the hope and strength that comes because in your light, we have seen life and light as you intended us to see it. We have seen you. We know what it is, Lord, to meet a moment of being overwhelmed and to draw near to you to experience you in a greater way than even our closest friend, even our spouse. Lord, let the future of Lakeview Christian Center be a place where we know something about experiencing your nearness. Lord, we don't just want to learn about it. hear about it. We want to experience your nearness in the days ahead. My heart and flesh cry out for you, the living God. Your spirit's water to my soul. I've tasted and I've seen come once again to me. I will draw near to I will draw near to you. My heart and flesh. My heart and flesh cry out for you, the living God. Your spirit's water to my soul. I've tasted and I've seen come once again to me. I will draw near to you, I will draw near to you, to you. Better is one day in your courts, better is one day in your house, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. How lovely is, how lovely.
their God, who find hope and faith and worth in their God, or who spend time with their God, not who just know about their God, but who know their God. Lord, make that so of us here, we pray, God.
for your glory. Amen. I want to remind you guys about the lunch we're having upstairs. If you're new to the church, come and join us for lunch.